Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us soft hearts, and that you would continue to change us for the sake of our good and your glory. Amen. Your perspective on life and death, on ease and difficulty, on your strength and God's power will absolutely inform how you respond when affliction comes upon you. Understanding how God works in such things will make the difference between having hope or having despair. And it will make the difference between enduring or giving up. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes to a church that is prideful in many ways. And this church is located in a region that questions whether or not they should believe what this apostle is saying because of all of the affliction that has been upon him in his life. Some think to themselves very clearly, God can't be with this guy. I mean, look at his life. It's a complete and utter train wreck. And throughout the letter, Paul describes how God gives perfect power to us in the midst of our weakness. This power is supernatural in its nature. It's rooted in the work of the Lord Jesus. It's motivated by love. And Paul is an example, living proof of it. When you are weak, God gives incredible strength. When you are fragile, God makes you firm. When you are powerless, God gives you access to see the powerful. And as Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians, which is immensely rich, but also wonderfully practical, we see that it begins with a praise to God for this work in us when we feel affliction, when the landscape of our days is marked by turmoil, when your soul is found to be in dead winter of despair. Comfort is what you need when you have affliction like this. And the good news this morning is that God desires to comfort you. And so follow with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of comfort, of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. The book of 2 Corinthians begins with the customary greeting of Paul to the church of God and all of the saints, it says. This letter is written to Christians. And that's important to recognize because the promises and the hope that are found in this letter are not promises or a hope that is equally applied to everyone. These are promises to God's people, unique promises that he makes to those who have faith, those who are part of the family of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the greeting of verse 2 highlights that reality when it says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace as you know, is favor that is bestowed upon someone. It's not earned. And we know that God gives saving grace. He gives favor to those who he forgives and thus he saves because of what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross. And furthermore, God gives incredible sustaining grace. Not just saving grace, but also sustaining grace. Ongoing favor to Christians, even in the midst of a time or a place or a situation where it feels like there is no favor to be found in the midst of your affliction. And this ongoing favor that God gives in chapter one is described as comfort. The comfort of God. The heart of this passage is found in a bi-directional expression of magnifying God in one direction 
and encouraging Christians in the midst of affliction in another direction. Look at verse three. It says that God is called the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Like so many titles and descriptions of God, these titles point to an element of God's character, who he is, and how that character results in the benefit of those who are his children. God is our father, it says. He loves us and he leads us and he repeatedly gives us mercies. He is the source of true and lasting comfort. For those who are afflicted, this title indicates. God is not called the father of vengeance and the God of judgment. He is called the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Comfort is a wonderful benefit of being a child of God. And this passage, more than any other in the entire New Testament, points to that truth. Ten times in these short few verses is the word comfort used. That's one-third of all of the references to comfort in the entire New Testament. And notice that when Paul speaks about comfort, in this passage, he is not speaking about being comfortable. There's a difference between comfort in this sense, and being comfortable. To be comfortable means that you have it easy, means that there's a pleasurable or undisturbed reality in which you are living. But comfort, in this sense, means to bring relief or to soothe someone who suffers affliction. It means to help. It means to encourage. There's a big difference between comfortable and comfort. And it's important to recognize that because in a culture like ours today where the seeking after of being comfortable is paramount among almost anything else, you need to hear me when the when I say to you that the New Testament never promises, that God never promises that you will be comfortable in this life. In fact, he promises almost the exact opposite of that. That if you are a child of God and a follower of the Lord Jesus, you will almost certainly not be comfortable in this life. Jesus says as much in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. <laughs> but take heart, I have overcome the world. So God never promises that you will be comfortable and God never seems to indicate in the Bible that being comfortable is something that's actually good for you. In fact, just the opposite. But the discomfort that you have in this world will be met with a supernatural comfort from God. Verse four, Paul says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted 
by God. Not many people had greater affliction than the Apostle Paul. And I would venture to guess that for as many of us who have experienced significant affliction in life, perhaps the Apostle Paul's affliction was even greater. He experienced nakedness and cold and multiple beatings. He experienced stoning and multiple shipwrecks. He experienced imprisonment and desertion. And yet in the middle of a life that is filled with affliction, he points not to the difficulty of the affliction. (laughs) He points to the comfort that God gives. And there are two implications of this as we see in verses four and five. Number one is that God gives us comfort that humans can't get anywhere else. I think of all of the ways that we seek comfort. And I would imagine that probably all of us have a default mechanism somewhere in there of the thing that we do or the place that we go to try to seek comfort when we experience stress or even worse, when we experience affliction. I wonder what it is for you. What is the default way in which you seek comfort? Some of us, might engage in that phenomenon called retail therapy. I actually read an article by a Cleveland Clinic psychologist this last week who talks about the reality and sense of short-lived comfort that retail therapy gives. It gives the purchaser a sense of control over their environment which is spinning out of control. The temporary feeling of happiness that comes with the smell or the feel or the sight of buying something new is a real thing. Some of us look to that for comfort. Some of us turn to exercise for comfort. Again, something we can control over our body and a proven stress reliever. Some of us would rather numb the difficulties in our life through alcohol or marijuana or other forms of drugs. That the comfort we experience is by disengaging with the reality around us. And some of us would seek comfort in the relationships that we have around us. I wonder what it is for you. Where do you look for comfort? Thomas Akempis once wrote that all human comfort is vain and short, but not so with God's comfort. It takes many forms, but it can always match the suffering God can deliver us out of affliction or encourage us in affliction so that we can endure it. Implication number one is that God can give us comfort that we can't get anywhere else. Implication number two is that the comfort that God gives is not meant for you alone. It is for your benefit, no doubt, Because God loves you. He's the father of mercies. But it is also for the benefit of others. 
Through the supernatural comfort of God, we're equipped to share that comfort for the benefit of other people. This is an amazing reality. God multiplies his efforts of comfort, and in doing so, he gives previously afflicted people the joy of being an emissary of comfort to those who are presently afflicted. Anton Chekhov wrote a story one time called The Lament. It's a simple story about an old man who drives a horse buggy for hire through the city. And the story goes that the old man had a son who had recently died. And in the midst of his grief and in his desire for comfort, he was desperate to tell somebody of his plight. A wealthy man hires the carriage for a ride across town. And as he climbs into the carriage, the old man says, My son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But the busy man doesn't have time to listen. Well, after the wealthy man leaves, another man steps into the carriage and he wants to be driven to the other side of the city. And so the old man says, My son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But again, the second man also doesn't bother to listen. And at the end of the day, the old man returns to the stables. He unhitches his horse and he begins to brush the horse down for the night. And he begins to tell the horse, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. He had no one to be the voice of comfort. And so what does it mean that God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction as well? Let's just bring it all the way down into our laps. How many of you have experienced incredible fear, pain, or uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis in the past? for yourself or for a family member. Right now, there are some of you that are afflicted with that very reality. And you need comfort from God and a word of comfort from those who had been previously afflicted. How many of you have experienced the pain of a crumbling marriage in the past? Right now, here today, there are some among us who are experiencing that reality and they strive for faithfulness to God and they need comfort from him which he promises to give them and they need encouragement and strength from those of you who have been there before. How many of you have experienced ridicule or scorn or persecution because of your faith? It could cost you your reputation. It could cost you your friendships. It could even cost you your job. You need comfort from God. And you also need a word of strength from those who have been there before. You get the point. When God calls a bunch of people to live together in a Christian community, he comforts them in a variety of ways. Undoubtedly through the ministry of his spirit, which is called the comforter. 
Without a doubt, through the supernatural nearness of his presence. And without a doubt, through the words of comfort that he had administered previously to someone else, which would be administered to you again. God uses you to be an emissary of comfort to the people around you. He uses people who have endured affliction in the past to become strength for others who are experiencing affliction in the present. We comfort others not from the foundation of superior faith, but from the commonality of mutual struggle. (laughs) And so make yourself a tool of comfort, just as God has comforted you. We see at the beginning of 2 Corinthians that God meets us in great affliction. He meets us with an even greater comfort. God meets us in great affliction. And he meets us with an even greater comfort. Verses 5 through 7 describe how some of the suffering of Christ and our participation relate to the comfort of Christ and what that means for us. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, For as we share abundantly, we share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so you see the dynamic of sharing in suffering and sharing in comfort. We share in Christ's sufferings, and as a result, we share in Christ's comfort. Paul says that The Christians are sharing in the apostles' sufferings and as a result, they share in the apostles' comfort. There are at least four different views of what it means to share in Christ's sufferings and I think the one that makes the most sense is this. To share in Christ's sufferings, for you to share in Christ's sufferings, means that you share simply in the same types of sufferings that Jesus himself experienced Because you are united to the Lord Jesus and have a participation with him in the supernatural work of God. After all, Philippians 3, chapters 10 and 11 says, Paul desires to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or Romans 8, 17 that says, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So there's this sense in which you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you become united with him supernaturally, as your status before God is elevated, Forgiven, set free, righteous, your status before humans is denigrated at the same time. And you experience what he experienced. You experience suffering in this world. Affliction, scorn, ridicule. 
but you also experience comfort. And this means a couple of things. It means, number one, that you expect affliction in life. It's an essential part of the Christian faith. It's part of being united to the Lord Jesus. You will suffer. I don't know how. I don't know when. But you will. But secondly, it means that if you think of your life in terms of a balance sheet with the afflictions piled up on one side and the comfort piled up on the other side, take heart. Because the tally of the comfort side is much more heavily weighted, and this is the reason why. It's much more heavily weighted because you are sharing in the comfort of the resurrected, divine, victorious Son of glory who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who has authority over all things and who will be magnified in eternity forever. You're united to that one. And his comfort is infinitely greater than the temporary afflictions that you might receive. God meets us in great affliction with an even greater comfort. And so what should you do when you're afflicted? You should endure. Verse 6 says that this comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. What should you do when the dark night of the soul is upon you? When the diagnosis is not what you want, when the relationships around you are beginning to either pressure or crumble, you endure. Comfort comes when you endure faithfulness, when you endure faithfully. Endurance is something that always sounds great when you're not in the middle of a crucible. <laughs> it sounds admirable and noble because it is. But when you're at mile 17 of the marathon and all you want to do is give up, endurance is not something that is desirable to you. Not that I would know. I've never run a marathon. But the same is true of your life. There's a great story about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer who spent years in the Siberian gulag. And at one point, he'd become completely discouraged and decided to give up and die. His plan was that he would stop working in the field, that he would lean on his shovel, and he would wait for the soldiers to come over and to beat him to death. However, when he stopped, another prisoner reached over and with his shovel, he quickly drew a cross at his feet and then erased it before the guard could see it. Solzhenitsyn later would say that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of hope 
and courage that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of our hope. He cared enough to remind him that God gives comfort and comfort is experienced in endurance. And so keep enduring. God meets us in great affliction and he meets us with an even greater comfort. And that's what Paul encourages us with. The last few verses of this section refers to a glimpse of the why and the how of affliction and comfort. And so let me read verse 8 through 11 for you. It says this, For we do not want you to be unawares, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. Let's just make a couple of observations. We don't know what the affliction of Paul was in Asia that caused them to despair unto death. It could have been a number of different things or a number of historical events in the life of Paul and his followers that brought them to that place. But as he recounts it, we can observe that the suffering that we experience, the affliction, has a purpose. And the purpose is to make us not rely on ourselves but to rely on God who raises the dead. Can I ask you just to give me a quick show of hands? How many of you have ever felt like you were so far to the end of your resources where you just knew I have nothing to rely on in myself? Can anybody testify to that reality? I know I can. I know that... um, one of my biggest shortcomings in life is self-reliance. And if you are anything like me and you've been laid bare in bed with the flu for days on end, (laughs) or you've experienced a situation that you can have no control over but is pressing down upon you at your job, You know that you're at the end of your resources. And when you are at the end of your resources, there is nowhere else to turn but to be completely dependent upon God to bring you back. You can't rely on yourself when you have nothing left to do or to give or to have. And sickness isn't the only way that God drives us back to him. Situations, afflictions, suffering, they all have this incredible purpose. And it's interesting to note that Paul never questions why he suffers. He never asks the question, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? You don't even catch a whiff of it. He simply lets it accomplish its purpose in him. And I want to encourage you to do the same. When you experience affliction, let it accomplish its purpose in you. How do you do that? 
You do it by responding to affliction in a way that says, I'm, I'm not going to rely on myself to get through this. I am going to turn to the only one who has the power to raise people from the dead. That's God himself. And you can do that when you realize that relying on yourself gets you nowhere, when you recognize that the same power that God rose Jesus from the dead is the power that will comfort you and ultimately deliver you from affliction. This is the pattern of life. Affliction, <laughs> downward spiral toward death, work of God, resurrection. It's the pattern of your physical life. You will experience physical affliction. Your body will continue to fail. You'll be on the downward spiral to death in this world. You will die. But if you're found in Christ, God will raise you from the dead. And you'll live with him forever. This is the pattern of the emotional or turmoil of life. You will have affliction in this world. It will lead you down to a dark place. It will bring you to the emotional state of death where your resources are depleted, where self-reliance is gone, where you have nowhere else to turn, and God will raise you up. Resurrection. And so, let suffering in you accomplish its purpose by driving you back to God. The second observation is that we set our present and our future hope on God. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 10 points us to the fact that because God delivered us in the past, we place our hope that he's going to do it again in the future. Reliance on God and hope in God go hand in hand. And the third observation is that God answers prayers to this effect, and the result is that we will give thanks to him. Prayer is the expression of reliance upon God. It's the vehicle that God uses to provide comfort. It's the mouthpiece of endurance and hope. And so when you suffer, endure, but when you suffer, pray. <laughs> Thomas Lye once said, I'd rather stand against the canons of the wicked than against the prayers of the righteous. Because God meets us in great affliction with an even greater comfort. The story of Ernest Shackleton is one that's known by many of you as a daring expedition across the Antarctic. is captured in both film and book form. And in 1914, Shackleton and his 27-member crew aboard the ship of the Endurance entered the ice fields of the Weddell Sea navigating through dangerous packs of ice. And with only 100 miles left in the journey, Shackleton made the fateful decision to stop and to wait for the break in the heavy ice. But the temperature dropped and the ice closed in around the ship, making it impossible to proceed. The crew would live aboard the ship for the next 10 months. Gradually, the ship succumbed to the crushing grip of the ice. Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship, and the crew began 
a march in search of safety, carrying minimal supplies and dragging three lifeboats, eventually reaching open water. They boarded the lifeboats. They sailed off in an attempt to find land. And surviving perilous conditions, they finally landed on the deserted Elephant Island. Stranded on the island with no hope for rescue, Shackleton and four other crew members set sail in a lifeboat in an attempt to reach an island of South Georgia. They traveled 800 miles in a lifeboat through the world's worst seas, and when they arrived at the island, they arrived only to discover that the whaling station was on the other side of the island. And so in order to rescue the remaining crew in time, Shackleton and two of his men must cross on foot the treacherous cliffs of the island, which were icy, forbidding, vulnerable to sudden blizzards or to hurricane force winds. The island's inhabitants considered this journey to be impossible. But nevertheless, Shackleton and his two partners crossed the island in 36 hours. Shackleton's diary provides an interesting perspective on the South Georgia Island crossing. He wrote, I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that there were four, not three, I said nothing to my companions, but afterward, Worldsley said to me, Boss, I had the curious feeling that there was another person with us. It sounds like an apt picture of the Christian life. Difficulty, peril, endurance, Reliance, victory, and the presence of God in it all. God meets us in great affliction with an even greater comfort. Some of you are here today and you are in the midst of that affliction right now. You are in the dead winter of the soul and you need the real comfort that only God can give and he gives it to you. Pray, endure, rely on him. Some of you are raked by fear because you do not know what happens next. Place your hope in the God who raises the dead. <laughs> and all of us need to prepare because our day of affliction will come. And your perspective on what is hard versus what is easy and how you get through it will inform how you respond. You can decide right now how you will respond in the affliction that will happen to you months or years from now. You're going to endure. You're going to rely on God. You're gonna pray and you are going to hope that he will provide the comfort for you when you need it. And he promises to do just that. God meets us in great affliction with an even greater comfort. What a wonderful father 
of mercies and God of all comfort. Let's pray. Father, we need what only you can give us. We confess that we so often seek for ourselves what we cannot provide, comfort, self-reliance, or that we give up in the midst of difficulty. So today we pray that you would bolster us in this wonderful character trait of yours, that you are the God of all comfort, that you would encourage us by the Spirit who is called the Comforter, that you would tenderly care for us and give us a bold courage. For the sake of your glory, we pray. Amen. As you go, let me encourage you with these good words. Ephesians chapter 3 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you as you go.